Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Luke Stutters. Hi. John Epperson. Hello, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Trisha Ball. Trisha, do you want to say hello and introduce yourself? Hey there. I'm Trisha Ball, and I'm currently a backend developer for TED conferences, which many of you would know as TED Talks. Cool. Yeah. Been a Rails developer for quite a while now, actually, since 2006. So I've been around for a bit. Your app is slow and you probably don't even know it. Maybe it's fine in most places, but then the customer loads the page up, that one page, and after a couple of seconds, their attention disappears into Twitter and never comes back. The reality is there are performance issues in your app and they're affecting your customer experience. What you need to do is hook up your app to Scout APM and let it start telling you where the slowdowns are happening. It makes it really easy it tells you how slow things are and what the problem is, like N plus one queries or memory bloat. It's also built for developers, so it makes it really easy to identify where the fix needs to go. I've hooked it up to some of my apps and I saw what I needed to fix in a couple of minutes. Try it today for free and they'll donate $5 to the open source project of your choice. Just go to scoutapm.com devchat and then deploy it to your app. Once you do that, they'll donate the five bucks. That's scoutapm.com devchat. Yeah, we brought you on today to talk about the lightning talk you gave at RailsConf. Was it RailsConf or RubyConf? I, I, it was RailsConf, yep. RailsConf, okay. And uh, you talked about finding diversity in not so diverse an applicant pool is, was the name of your uh, your talk. So I'm, I'm just curious, what prompted this? And I'm really curious about where the numbers came from, but I kind of want the background first. So tell us a story. What's, what's the story behind this lightning talk? You know, at TED and at other places I was employed, there's always been conversations about how do we increase diversity on our engineering teams. And it's always been a, a struggle. We come up with ideas, but you just you just don't seem to make a lot of get a lot of traction with it. And as I like I said, I've been around for a while, I started thinking that not only am I not seeing very many women like myself, but I'm not seeing very many women in my age group. So the women I do meet tend to be younger, not too far out of school, you know, and it's not, I'm not seeing too many, you know, 40 something year olds who've been doing this for 10 plus years. So that kind of just got me thinking, what could those reasons be? And that's what sent me down this path. That makes sense. So I'm kind of curious because, yeah, I mean, I've seen, I've, seen the same thing, right? I've seen a lot of uh, a lot more women coming into tech, but yeah, they tend to be younger people. And I'm, I'm curious what you think the reason is for that. Well, you know, I mean, my gut feeling and just based on rumors and whatnot, just casual conversations is that you know, women were leaving tech uh, more often. So they weren't actually getting to the level that I've gotten to over time because they've already left and moved on to a different field. Okay. Because you, you showed some numbers in here, and I, I'm just curious, is this backed by some data that you have, or is this mostly what you've seen just by talking to people? Right. No, that's a great question. So the, just casual conversations is what started me down this path, but mm -hmm. I don't want to start throwing things out without backing it up. So my, my main study that I referenced was a paper written by the National Center for Women and Information Technology. And it was a paper called Women in Tech, The Facts that came out in 2016. And to be honest, I spent a great deal of time trying to find statistics of when people were leaving tech 
in their careers. I, I wanted to cover both women and people of color. And it was a struggle just to find numbers about women. And there was even less about people of color. So that was frustrating because I think along the way, I was expecting to see a lot of research in this area. And there just really wasn't that much. Yeah, I I can understand that. I mean, I've I think I've argued both sides of some of the issues that get brought up when we talk about this. And yeah, what I, I've run into the same problem, right? I haven't been able to find good data. And the problem is, is that people tell the story of what they went through. And it, sometimes it's really horrific. And sometimes it's just like, yeah, I would have left too. But yeah, going through and saying, okay, this is your experience not to discount that. But yeah, then how do we how do we know what's actually happening, right? Because if we can see numbers where it's, yeah, you know, they women tend to drop off at five years for some reason, you know, then we can start digging into the what and why there and start actually solving some of the problems there instead of saying, we got to get rid of all the jerk bosses because we just can't know that everywhere. So yeah. I uh, actually spent some time because I was thinking, you know, we track a lot of this data through the federal government tracks a lot of this data Mm -hmm. too. And I actually dove into the data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and they have great numbers of how many women and how many people of different races and ethnicities are in technology. And they have great numbers of the age ranges people are in, in technology, but not really that cross section of the two. Uh, Not that That age range really determines level of experience, uh, because they're, you know, of course, people who come into tech as their second career, but at least gives mm-hmm. a better idea. And during my research, I had actually reached out to the people at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, shot them an email, and really didn't expect to hear from them for like a year. But they got right back with me and oh, wow. that they didn't have, they had those numbers at a much higher level at like people in computers and mathematics or something, but not into the specific detailed positions to give to give a better understanding of you know are they software developers or are they you know i don't know just a tech and an engineering firm so I, it wasn't a, it wasn't detailed enough to be able to get good data from so what do we know then i'm uh, just you know to dive right in right so what i've seen is that women in tech are dropping out about 56% of women in tech drop out before they are mid career oh wow and yeah it's it was a much higher number than I'd expected. And mid-career was really a vague term, to be honest. I think one of the papers I saw referenced like that's between 10 and 20 years. So that's a wide range. Another document had said, now talking about all of STEM, not just technology, 50% of women left within their first 12 years. And that compared to women in non-STEM field, only 20, 20% were leaving mid-career. Interesting. Okay. I've been asking all the questions. I'm going to let John and Luke chime in if they want. <laughs> no sweat. I, I, w- I wanted to let you dive as much as you wanted before I like came in here. I'm, I'm kind of, well, trying I will to monopolize back. the call because I'm really curious about this stuff and I want to know, okay, you know, like, and Trish kind of uh, implied this, what do we know? And then do we know why people are dropping out? I, I'm kind of curious about that. I guess we don't really have good numbers on that, but Maybe we do, and I just don't know. No, there's uh, lots of, there's actually more information I'd say out there about why people are leaving than when they're leaving. Oh, okay. So I do have, I have some details on that. Now, I mean, when I started in this topic, it wasn't, definitely wasn't my focus. My focus was Mm -hmm. how does it impact if you're looking at hiring people in senior roles? 
does that mean, you know, if 26% of people in tech are women, does that mean 26% of your pool should be women? So that was... That's a much better question, actually. Right. And, and that's actually what led me down here. And that's the numbers you would see in my slide deck from my lightning talk is kind of tries to break it down by that. And what I had seen was... Sorry, I'm going to pull up my numbers here. So if you're looking at 26% of tech is women, and then 56 leave by mid-career, so that leaves you 44%, right? If you have these 44%, you take, sorry, 44% of the women in tech are sticking around. And so that brings you of like 11.5% overall. So that's already, if you're looking for mid-career or higher people, that's already dropped you down to an 11.5% of people in tech. Then I start thinking about, well, that's all of tech. We work with Rails. How many of those people are actually in the tech stack that we use? And of course, there's not going to be numbers of that out there. But as you chop it down even further, it just shows you that how much smaller those numbers are when you're actually looking at the core specific requirements. Makes sense. Yeah, one of the, so a little bit of background story. So I co-founded and, and still run and, and involved in the local meetup group here in Charlotte, uh, Charlotte Devs, which is, it, it was originally started like kind of like as a junior thing. And so we have a lot of juniors that come through this group. One of the things that I, as an observer, like there's not good data on this, but I, as an observer, feel like what I have seen a lot of is there are sort of shops that take in a lot of juniors. They're, they're just, I don't know, they're just really heavy junior. And they seem to have an abnormally large number of women compared to other places. And I don't know. My I'm curious where your where your thoughts are on things, but so far what I have seen through my oh what is it? it was like two and a half years with this, my observation right now tends to be towards women are just coming in, getting in these sweatshops because that's basically what they are. And and they just hit burnout really fast. And well, you know, somebody that's burnt out, they find a new career. I I don't know. That's been my observation so far. Does that line up at all? Is it very different? Is it just an anecdotal story in your opinion? Right. No, I think that lines up pretty well with what I'm seeing. A lot of what I've read about why women are leaving is related to company culture, right? So if you are being burned out, you know, worked excessive hours, don't have the flexibility that uh, some people would prefer in a job, it would make you start wondering, is this really what I want to be doing for the rest of my life? If I'm 20 something years old and thinking, oh my gosh, I have 40 plus more years ahead of me. Do I really want to keep doing this? I think the question comes up and people start looking at other opportunities. That's fair. I, I mean, I, I don't, I do not believe that it can explain everything, but it's certainly, I don't know. It, it's happened enough locally that, that it clearly has made an effect on me. The other thing I, I was kind of curious because I've often, I mean, I'm very interested in this pipeline problem as well, right? Because for me, it's like, okay, so if 25% of women, right? Or, or I'm sorry, 25% of tech people are women, then then I would expect that on average, on the whole, like a given business could expect their numbers to be close to that, right? Mm -hmm. if, if, if we're doing all things as we should be or whatever. But that's not always going on. So I guess... What does the pipeline look like? So I'm thinking like the entrances to the pipeline because, and this has also kind of been influenced a little bit by my experience over the past few years with Charlotte Doves because it seemed, 
based based on just that experience, it seems a lot more women are entering via these alternate path. I, I don't want to say alternate paths because that implies that the right path is like to go to college. But a lot of men are entering through the college path, right? Going mm-hmm. get their degree and then going onto the field. And and it seems like there's a lot more women in these alternate paths than there are coming through these col- college paths. I don't know if you have data handy or anything. Or I if that's um, even findable. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's data out there, and I haven't spent a lot of time on on that as much. What I do know, I mean, going talking about the four year route is over time, women graduating with bachelor's degrees in tech has actually dropped since uh, I think. 90, 1990, 1991, I think it was 35% maybe coming in with tech degrees. And then that's dropped down to 20 something. I don't have that number right in front of me. Sorry. And is that in STEM or is that across all of? That was uh, tech. That was for tech. um, Specifically. And actually what's interesting is STEM, the other STEM fields are increasing slightly. I mean, not not like a big jump, but you'd see a steady incline for the other, the data I'm looking at right now is like biological and biomedical sciences and mathematics and physics. Those numbers on a, are on a slow incline, but you look at computer information sciences, there's like a definite drop around um, 2000, which probably would, you know, lines up kind of with the, uh, the dot-com burst, which is, I don't know if that's, if there's a, um, a relation to that or not, but it just is interesting to me that it's around the same time. I agree. That sounds super interesting. I want to go back to the idea of should your company ratio, I guess, represent the overall ratio. Now, when I took statistics in college, they beat us over the head with the idea that, and I'm the, the example they used was like free throw shots, right? So if you're a basketball player and you have a 75% accuracy on free throws, then if you've made three free throws, would you expect them to miss the fourth? And they beat this into our head. And the answer was no, because they have a 75% chance of making yes. the free throw on the fourth shot, right? Mm-hmm. And, and every shot is different. And I see hiring the same way. So I think generally across the field, and I'm also guessing that as you have a larger pool of developers or tech people, you would also see it begin to reflect more the 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 wider ratio across the the field but in smaller companies i don't know if i would really expect that and if you're looking for people and the the odds are 75 percent the people are coming in or male then it seems like in every instance you would generally expect that the person you're going to hire is male not out of any sort of bias just because that's what the pool is right Mm -hmm. Uh, before you answer that question trisha which I think you should get it. Let me clarify my position since I was the one who like sort of made that statement, right? I guess what I'm trying to say is I think this is a canary in the coal mine thing. If we look at our stats across the industry, right? And we're not seeing stuff line up with 25%, then I think that that says something, right? It's like a warning. It's like what we call like smell tests, like when we write bad code or something, right? It's like, okay, well, I didn't recognize it while I was going on, but something's wrong here now, all of a sudden, because I now just, and that's kind of more like what would I think because your your small companies, they're going to have a distribution all over the place. Yes. You're going to have a company that's all females. You're going to have a well, fewer of them, of course, right? But you're going to have companies that are all males uh, and you're going to have everything in between, right? But the distribution should come about. Okay. Right. Oh, you and, and that's kind of, and that's what, it, that's kind of what I'm thinking too, is like, you are going to see 
you can't expect every company to be hitting this this mark of you know let's say you know we're aiming for 50-50 men and women which since we're not seeing that coming through the pipeline that's an kind of an unrealistic goal at this point hopefully at some point we can get to that but you know i think as you start averaging companies together you would like to see it kind mm-hmm. of align yeah. with what you're seeing coming out of the pipeline and so as we start uh, widening the pipeline then we would start seeing those numbers, those averages increase as well across the board. And and I guess the point I was making was just generally, yeah, just that. I guess the question that I want to ask next is just to go into, okay, and the, I just to back up for a second, the other thing is, is that, you know, once you get to a significant number of developers, if you're not seeing that ratio, I would at least think about what you're doing with your practice, your hiring practices, because people with different backgrounds, people with different, I mean, anything really, anything that makes them different from the other developers is going to bring a different viewpoint on what you're doing and is going to help your your business and your development process get better. So, you know, I I think diverse teams actually are, are much, much more efficient at solving problems than non-diverse teams, as long as everybody's on the same page as far as what you're trying to accomplish. So, so how do we do this then? And, and I guess this was your lightning talk, right? Is, okay, so if the odds are that if I just put a call out there and then I just take whatever candidates come in, odds are I'm going to wind up finding men, right? And so if, if I want to attract women or if I want to make sure that I'm attracting across the entire spectrum of people out there, what, what do I need to do? Right. You know, I, I think part of it is what you're looking for in when you're hiring. So are you looking for a senior developer or are you looking for more junior people? And, you know, as we're seeing where the drop-off happens, actually it's predominantly in the first five years you start seeing it, but it goes all the way through mid-career. If you're going, catching people like right as they're getting through the pipeline, you're going to have a much better chance of having a more diverse team. But if you're looking only like we only hire senior devs because we want people that can just run in and you know just jump into it and don't need any help. Mm-hmm. Chances are you're not going to see a lot of diverse applicants. And that's that's for a number of reasons along with the fact that there's probably less people that meet those qualifications, but I think if people started not making that a hard and fast rule that we need to have 10 years of experience in Ruby on Rails, working with APIs, if you start kind of broadening that a little bit more and you'll have a wider applicant pool, a wider diversity in your applicant pool. And then you can bring people in and give them some mentorship and turn them into the senior developers that you want them to be. And hopefully along the way, help improve those retention numbers. Can I just take that and play that back about 20 times for the people that call me up and ask me how to hire a senior developer? Please do. Please do. I get asked that all the time. I need a senior developer. I can't find one. And it's like, well, then hire a junior and train them. And they'll do exactly, they'll do what you want the way you want. And we were all junior at one point, right? We all, we all made our way to senior developers. We had help along the way. There were people, uh, hopefully, I mean, I'm sure not everybody had it, but I definitely had mentors as I was going through my career. And without them, I would definitely not be where I am today. While we've been talking, I have your lightning talk uh, slides pulled up. Thanks for providing them, by the way. There's this one. So there's two like super interesting slides, right? There's 25% of tech people are women, right? But then then the very next slide is when you get down to like mid upper level in tech, right? It's it's about 10%. It's like 11% on this slide or whatever, right? But that's a stark 
decrease. If you start out your requirements as like, well, I only want a senior level dev. Well, now you've just decreased your odds of finding a woman down to 10%, right? Exactly. Absolutely. And on top of that, women and other underrepresented groups tend to be more critical of themselves when they apply for positions. They more are looking for, yes, I check 100% of these boxes instead of, yeah, I've, you know, read an article on this one thing. I can, you know, throw my name in. And so if you're saying you want a senior dev and you have to meet all of these things, that's going to reduce the people who want to throw their names into the ring as well. Can I ask real quick, do you advise people to actually apply for jobs they don't tick all the boxes on? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, and and I don't have the data in front of me to uh, reference anything, but studies have shown, you know, studies that I've read have shown that men typically don't, you know, men typically will apply to things that they don't check all the boxes on. And women tend to make sure they check every single one. Well, I can tell you I definitely have. So so uh, I think this is always interesting because I'm one of the, I don't know what the percentage is. I'm one of the males that like, is like, oh, I need to check every single box, right? But at the same time, I totally have heard that many times that, that women in general fall into that category more than men. So I'm sure there's plenty of exceptions in the male world like me. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, similarly, there's exceptions in other genders where they are, you know, there's some people that are like, what the heck? It's their time, not mine. I'll just throw a resume at them. But yes, more likely than not, underrepresented groups are trying to make sure they hit all the boxes. Absolutely. And that's that's what I was aiming for. Sweet. So, okay. Do we have any other solutions to this problem or, or thoughts on how to solve it? You know, I think I referenced earlier that one of the problems with retaining people is the team culture. And team culture is something more than just having a diverse and inclusive team. It's your entire team culture will have an impact and only benefit people who are from diverse backgrounds. So having things like, like I'd said, you know, mentorship programs or outlets for people to collaborate with, if you're able to have a culture that's going to make people of diverse backgrounds feel comfortable, that's going to help lead to them turning into senior engineers and sticking around. So I guess that doesn't really help the hiring front and increasing our pool, but it really is just a, I mean, when you're hiring senior devs, you're relying upon the people who hired the junior devs to have had a good atmosphere to keep people in the game to allow them to progress. This is this is actually one of, so I, I, I'm sorry, this is an agreement thing, I think. I agree with you. And I think it's actually one of the things that makes me personally angry. I feel like it should make everyone angry. Like when you basically find out that like a shop in your area or something is kind of like one of those sweatshops, it, it makes me personally ragey because that's just a bunch of people who would be good senior devs later that are not going to be because they're just not all of them, but people are going to go through that system and be super frustrated, burnt out, and they're going to leave. I have to say, I've been, I've been fairly lucky as compared to some women in this industry. I did not have to go through a sweatshop type situation. For the most part, I was on teams who, you know, I mean, I, I, have seen, I've had some struggles along the way, but I've also worked with a lot of supportive people. Like I mentioned, I've had, you know, mentors throughout my career. And I know not all women are lucky enough to fall into those positions. But I do want women to know that those kinds of positions do exist because I think, I mean, there is definitely a a stereotype 
within the tech industry that about those all careers are these, you got to work 10, 12 hour days and, you know, you it's nonstop. You have to be at the office the whole time. And I think there is just that feeling that, you know, I think people who get into the industry might fear that there's no way out of that kind of situation. And there are jobs out there that value your time and your work-life balance. And I want I want everybody out there to know they exist. Yeah. One other thing that I've seen with the retention issue is that they'll hire juniors and then they continue to think of them as juniors after they've progressed a year or something, right? Because they're still the new person. And so they don't give them a raise, right? I've, I've talked to a number of companies, well, I can't hire a junior developer because we train them up for a year and then they leave. And I'm like, well, why are they leaving? Well, they got a better offer somewhere else. And I said, well, then you need to make that better offer before they get it somewhere else. And there, there's there's a lot to that too. Yeah, that's a great point. That same National Center for Women in Information Technology, that their study shows that 32% of women report feeling stalled in their careers and so that they plan to quit within a year. And of that, 48% of, for African-American women are feeling stalled. And so they aren't getting that advancement that they're looking for in order to move their careers forward. Like you said, a lot of them feel like they're continuing to be treated like junior developers or that they are, they're just not heard. Their opinions aren't valued as high as some others. They don't feel like they're able to make the impact that they want to be able to make. And so that's another reason for them considering to switch career paths. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because a lot of people are like, well, that, you know, that, that stuff doesn't happen. You know, they don't get put down. They don't get put aside. And I think it's highly situational. I think sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. But the reality is, is if you want to hang on to them and they're talented, they have to feel like they are right. And that's the real thing is we talk about a lot of the statistics and numbers, but when it comes right down to retaining somebody, I mean, that's that's a big deal. If they don't feel like they're valued, if they don't feel like their opinions are listened to, it doesn't matter if they are or not. They are going to leave. Absolutely, 100%. You may think you're doing everything right, but that doesn't mean that's how your employees think is, is uh, things are going. One of the things that I find frustrating is I've worked with men who feel like they're champions of diversity. They feel they sell themselves. They kind of talk the talk about, yes, you know, we need to hire more women, we need to hire more people of color, but then you don't actually see things happen. And that's, I think, even more frustrating than, than the problem being ignored. Because you know, they give you some glimmer of hope that, that things will move forward, but it just never gets there. It's just kind of like appeasing you as mm-hmm. time goes on. I think there's a lot of things to, uh, I mean, there, there's definitely some for- forgivable mistakes in that regard. And there's definitely, I think, some deception there. Right, that that's clearly less forgivable. I guess my thoughts. I, I don't know if they necessarily even matter, but like where I fall on this is, I think it's like really. First of all, this is a really hard problem, and I think that anyone that walks into this saying that like, look, it's a really easy solution, just do this. That's that's kind of arrogant and a bit of a jerk. It's a hard problem, and it requires a freaking lot of work, as we can clearly see. Because not only is the pipeline delivering us not tons of women or whatever but we're chasing them out and we've created an entire culture that's, I mean, let's be frank, it's a fairly toxic culture for all of us. I mean, is anyone sitting here at this table feel like you, uh, I mean, I know that I feel like I basically push myself forward all the time, right? I have to have confidence in myself because there isn't somebody out there really who's championing me on a day-to-day basis. I have to have confidence in my abilities and do it. 
that's pretty toxic or whatever. Our industry as a whole, just throwing that out there, it's just not conducive for the vast majority of people. Uh, I don't know if I would label that as toxic. I think everywhere you have that problem, you know, where, you know, you go in and it's really up to you to do the work, to level up, to, to get things done. And, and I wouldn't put responsibility on anyone else to do that. At the same time, I mean, it definitely makes things nicer, easier, more pleasant, uh, a better place to be. But it's not a culture or a, a situation that's actively beating you down, which is to me more toxic than it's just it's not going out of its way to build you up. Okay, so so I actually am specifically saying that I do think that there are, and, and you know maybe it's not everywhere, and maybe it's just my been my experience, right? But there is a lot of headwinds in front of you as a developer, and not a ton of support. You have to go find that yourself. I feel like most of the time, and I mm-hmm. feel like there's a lot of people do. I hear all the time people are like, I landed in an awesome place. You know, I have people that support me. I didn't have that experience through basically most of my career. And I know lots of people that talk to me about that. At least, you know, this is anecdotal, obviously, but they talk to me and they have similar experiences to me or whatever. So the whole like white tower thing, all these things that we complain about in our industry, I see them and I feel like a lot of other people see them. I don't think that that describes everybody, but it's clearly... I don't know. It's there or whatever, I guess what I'm trying to get at. No, I, I've actually, I've worked, I've definitely worked jobs like that where you just kind of work in isolation. You have a team of people and you have an end goal, but you're working in isolation. You don't get any feedback, whether it's positive or negative for the most part until something doesn't work right. And you're just churning things out. But I've also worked one of the best positions I've had was uh, with a team where I think we had like between 10 and 12 people, depending and we probably we were pair programming probably 85% of the time, which I know is a controversial topic in and of itself. But the way we managed things is we would continually switch pairs. So we were working side by side. And actually, it's relatively side by side because we were remote. But working with someone almost all day long and you form a bond and a sense of trust, it was something I hadn't experienced before. And you know, I'm no longer on that team. But we all are still very close because of that bond. And we were able to improve each other throughout the time we were there together. And it, what's interesting is that, is, and this kind of goes to the whole like junior-senior relationship thing is the juniors were teaching the seniors just as much as the seniors were teaching the juniors when they were pairing. And there was, we didn't really differentiate when we were choosing our pairs, who was with who based on skill level, but we were still continually pushing everybody forward. It was a pretty fantastic experience. Did you have a feeling that that improved, like retaining people? Did that lead to something, I guess? Or or did you just feel they were unrelated? No, I think it absolutely did. Now, I mean, so like I said, I'm no longer in that position. The reason I'm no longer in that position was because it was a, a startup that didn't do so well. And so we ended up having to lose the, almost all of the engineering team. We dispersed not by choice. Totally makes sense. But you felt like you were keeping people, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So to lead, uh, I mean, okay, so I realized that I kind of unintentionally went down a tangent, but... Uh, That's okay. I think <laughs> I think it speaks to the larger issue, so... Yeah, I, I wanted to reel it back in, right? Because from from where I stand, people that stay in this industry have a higher, just as a general rule, have a higher tolerance level, if that makes sense, for the the difficulties of it, right? Whether you think it's super toxic or whether you think it's, you know, a mixed bag, 
which actually is really where I sit, right? Like, I don't think the industry as a whole is toxic. I just think that there's definitely pools of it everywhere uh, that you can walk in. Is this stuff related? I, I know that you you have a tendency to be more of a data person, and I'm actually asking your opinion here. Feel free to like just say no. But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just, it, it's been kind of my bent, as it were, that men are boxing women out in a, in a sort of way, right? Is that is that something that you feel is true? Is it something that you're like, well, maybe, but I can't, you know, there's no data. And could we measure it maybe? Right. No, you know, it's funny you say that because as I've experienced things through my careers, as I've felt unheard or that my points couldn't make it through, it was in my head. It was, this was a me issue, not a broader issue. Right. And as I've done some research on this and as I've spoken to other women in the industry, it tends to be that there is a sense of isolation for people in underrepresented groups. So not having that camaraderie or people who can relate to things that are going on in your life or relate to your feelings can make you feel isolated. And then, like you said, boxed out, right? And whether it's by choice or by circumstance, and that tends to get people turning away from the career too. If they don't feel like they fit in, you know, they don't necessarily want to be there. That was the point of one of the keynotes at Rails, at 2019's RailsConf 2. I think it was 2019. Maybe I just have my years mixed up. There was a black gentleman that was telling us about his experience. Maybe that was 2018. I don't know. And he was talking about how because he felt like he was the only one, it was really hard for him. Absolutely. I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm a mom. And for the longest time, I was the only mom on our team. We have several dads on our team, but they're all in different circumstances. You know, some of them have wives that stay home and help with the children and others that they're doing the balance with their working wives to uh, help manage the kids. But I didn't have anybody I could go to when I say, you know, is it really okay that I'm going to all of my kids, all of my kids appointments? Like I could ask my coworkers and I could get a response, but I don't ever know if it's a genuine response. You know, I worry that there's the, oh, well, why is, why is Trish gone again? Conversation happening, but not actually happening to me. And so having someone there who has similar circumstances to me to be able, I could bounce ideas off of would just be comforting. Or if I run into a problem where I'm like, hey, I didn't feel like I was really hurt in this situation. I have somebody that I can trust that I feel safe with that they could say, no, no, I think it was because of this reason that they moved past your point. Or no, that's really a problem. You need to bring it forward. But there's the idea of being the only on a team. And I did air quotes there, but you guys can't see me. But you know, being the only woman or being the only African-American or you know, not having somebody who can relate to you can be even more isolating and cause even more problems. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong 
and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. Does that drive you to go try and seek play, like shops where there are other women? No, that's a good question. I don't know if it necessarily drives me personally, but I'm sure it drives other women in the industry. Okay, we can leave that as unanswered. Yeah, but to your point, I mean, we do derive certain uh, social norms just from the way that uh, we see others behave. And the more that they are like us, not necessarily even physically, but just in our perception in our head, right? I mean, we learn social norms from our parents and from our siblings and from, you know, the other people in society when we go to school and things like that. And so when you see people behave in a certain way, like you're saying, then it's like, okay, well, if they're doing it, then I, I can kind of get the lay of the land there. And it, it is more comfortable to talk to people under those circumstances, right? Because it's, it's look, I have the, the mom situation and you have the mom situation. And so I can ask you what that looks like and, you know, know whether or not the expectations are the same for both of us and, and things like that. And so that, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And I do think, I mean, I think if I were, you know, a woman coming into an all male team, I would definitely start asking questions of why is it an all male team? Were there women there before that have left because of problems? Or am I being interviewed because, you know, they need a token woman on their team? You know, it does definitely raise questions and I would feel more comfortable knowing that there's already, it's already condu a conducive atmosphere for having women. So back to that point then, let's say that I'm running a team of 10 or 11 developers um, and I'm hiring my 12th. And like, like we were talking about before, I want to make sure that I'm getting that, you know, making sure that people who are of diverse backgrounds feel comfortable applying. Mm -hmm. And then during the interview, what do I do to make sure that they feel comfortable accepting my offer? You know, what, what kinds of things should I be doing at that point to make sure that that this reflects that, yeah, this isn't a token thing. It's not a weird thing. We are looking, you know, to make sure that we're broadening our base. I mean, right. what, what kinds of things do people do, right? No, you're right. And it's something I've given a lot of thought to because it's a bit of a catch-22, right? You want to have a more diverse workforce, but at the same time, you can't hire people from diverse backgrounds because you don't have a more diverse workforce. I don't know if I have a great answer to that, but I do think just common courtesy things, um, not interrupting someone when you're interviewing them, making them feel respected. You know, I don't, I think if you're interviewing some, someone and they feel comfortable having a conversation with you or other people on your team, I think they might be able to look past that they might be the only, only whatever of the certain background, whether it's gender or race, ethnicity or whatnot. But, you know, it is, it is a tricky place to be in for sure. And I do kind of along with that, I actually, you know, I think about that with our team. So we have only two female engineers on our team. And, I, and when we talk about recruiting, how do the men go out and recruit women or, or people of color without making them feel like they're being targeted just because of their background? And that I think is a, is a tricky situation as well. But I think like, for example, if I approached a woman at a meetup 
and said, hey, we're, you know, we're looking to hire for our team, it would feel less awkward, I think, than if, you know, one of our, our white men on our team went in and did the same thing. Yeah. One other thing that I want to put out there is that I've recommended women for jobs. I've actually recruited women in the past, but it was always under the circumstances of not just walking up and trying to throw a sales pitch at them, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It was, I got to know them I got to know, you know, who they were, what they were capable of, kind of what their life situation was. So we got to be friends. Mm -hmm. And then I realized they'd be a good hire and I hired them that way. And I think a lot of folks go out and they have this idea that, well, we need to hire a woman or we need to hire somebody who's, you know, a racial minority or something like that. And so they just go out and they just talk to all the people that they can find that meet that criteria. And in reality, they, they kind of forget that, hey, these are people too. And if I get to know them, then I can find the right person that's going to be a good contributor and that meshes well with the team and all of the other things that you're generally looking for when you're hiring. And you're going to recognize that, hey, look, they trust me now because we're friends. And I know that I'm doing them a solid by bringing them into this company. In other words, it's not just for us to check off a quota. It's not just for us to look good. It's because it's going to be good for them. And it's going to be good for us. And I care about them as a person. And that's why this is going to work out. Absolutely 100% spot on. That's exactly right. You can't just show up at meetups and approach anybody who doesn't look like you and see if they're looking for a job. You need to attend the meetups and, and see who's regular there, get to know them, like you said, determine if they, you seem like they would fit the criteria that you need for your team, and, and then start uh, recruiting at that point. Yeah, I think I think that's the downfall of the conversation that happens on both sides of this coin is that, yeah, we just failed to see that they're people and that if we treat them like people, then, you know, hopefully we can work things out so that we can have a profitable engagement, if not become friends. Yeah, I think the friends thing is actually really important, right? So business is based on trust, whether that's because you're hiring somebody or whether that's because you're, you're trying to do a business to business relationship, whatever it is, right? Like when you get into the business world, there's an amount of trust that's here. A lot of times the way that looks is you hire your friends or you do business with your friends. And I think that what we see in the business world really is just a reflection of how we make friends. And so we have a tendency to make friends with people that look and talk exactly the way that we do. And so that's how we do business. We do business with people that look and talk the way that we do. And I think that if you genuinely are a person that makes friends with people like it, like me as a male, like I'm, I have friends that are women, right? And so when I, I'm not saying that all my friends are women. In fact, let's be fair, I'm a male. Most of my friends are men, that is true. But when we wanted to bring on another owner to, to my consulting firm, I specifically approached one of my friends that's a female. Actually, let's be fair, like she was like one of like two people in my head that I wanted to do this anyway. But the point was that like, I approached her and I was like, hey, we, um, you know, it, it's me and my best friend right now, right? Uh, that are owners and we want somebody else to come in and be an owner and we have no female owners. And if we don't have any like females on early on in the company, we're going to make a lot of decisions that are going to push this company in the direction of being very male oriented. We probably still are. There's still two males to one female. But the point is we wanted somebody to like make our culture better. And, and like we, I, I, I like approached her and I was like, hey, so her name's Victoria. And I was like, Victoria, like, I know that I'm asking you to take on a responsibility to do this. And she was like, cool with it. 
I wouldn't, I don't think I would have approached her if I didn't think she would be cool with it. But, but I guess what I'm trying to say is she thought I was genuine and she thought it was a mutual benefit, mutually beneficial relationship. And so she was cool with it. I guess what I'm trying to get at is I think your friends know if you're, if you're genuine or not, and they'll do stuff with you if, if you are. I think that makes sense. And I think I really love the fact that you were just open about it uh, and just saying, Yes, you know, part of the reason we want you is because you are female, but we know that's going to help make our team even better. And just being upfront about that. And, and of course, you know, I know that's not the only reason you wanted to bring her on board, and I'm sure she knew that as well. But just saying, like, this is the added benefit along with your skills that you will bring to our team. I think that's important too. And I neglected to mention that. Sorry. She has skills, and we brought her in because she has skills. Oh, I assume that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I, I knew, but I just wanted to make sure that we, I think it's important because I think this does get dropped in conversations where you actually mean this person's totally qualified and they had this thing. We didn't just hire this person because they were black or Hispanic or they were a woman or whatever, because I think that's that's the thing that people get upset about. I suppose if if that is the only reason that I had approached this person, that would be something to get upset about, but it was not. Well, and like you said, you were being genuine and she knew that you were being genuine. And, and if that was the only reason, I don't think you would come across as genuine. Yes. All right. Well, we are kind of getting toward the end of our time, but I want to make sure that we've covered all of our bases and made sure that everybody has been able to speak up. I also think it's interesting that we've kind of stayed a little bit away. We've kind of implied some of it, but just stayed away from sort of the, does somebody have a moral obligation to any of this, right? I, I like leaving a lot of this up to people. But it is definitely worth thinking about, even if you're not in a position where you're thinking, you know, we have to do this, at least make some considerations and see if you're missing an opportunity to have somebody with a different point of view come in and, and, and be part of your team. I don't have a lot to say about women in technology because I'm not a woman, so I don't really know what's going on. But I have worked in the US and uh, the UK marketplaces with some very good engineering teams. And the, the, the best the best engineering teams do tend to have women on them. I'd just, like to think so. <laughs> just something I've noticed. The I, I wonder if you've seen the talk by Robert Martin, otherwise known as Uncle Bob, uh, where he talks about the declining numbers of women in technology it he means since I think he since the sixties. Uh, have you have you seen that talk? I haven't, but I'd like to. Well, he goes around giving the same talk over and over again. So it's, it's dead easy to find on YouTube. But that's uh, just a little joke. But he um, he talks about this. But I never would have believed that the number of women in IT has been going down since 1991. There it is. You know, you would have thought. I mean, the you would have thought especially with the huge range of technology and that you know that the internet and uh, mobile has introduced those numbers would be kind of balancing themselves out but we seem to be going in the wrong direction so i like your talk because it gave a very concrete action of what we can do but i was just wondering why do you think that these women who've gone into technology are not staying in what, what do you think is the main reason why they're dropping out? Well, you know, I, as I mentioned before, culture and also a sense of isolation. And I mean, to kind of bring out a personal anecdote, I don't know, maybe like six or seven years ago, I was in, I was on a team where everybody, like you said, was just kind of heads down 
doing their thing. Uh, we attempt, you know, we we considered ourselves an agile team. We had, you know, our daily stand-ups, but we just weren't very collaborative along the way. And I for sure felt separate from every person on my team. And I got to a point where I started considering leaving tech. I'm grateful, grateful that I did not, but I was not happy in my position. I was pushed in a managerial role because of my soft skills, which is not uncommon. You know, you all don't know me, but God, I can't make a decision to save my life. And I hate confrontation. Like I am not a manager. I just want to code. But it was just a dreadful situation. I spent all my time in meetings and I thought, this is not where I want to be. And I started thinking, uh, you know, one of my passions is teaching technology to kids. And so I started thinking about, well, maybe I want to become a teacher and move down that role. No, you don't. (laughs) It's the worst job, trust me. You know, you're probably right. But, But I didn't know, I wanted a place where I would be happy and I felt like I could not be happy in the development world anymore. And really all it took was changing to a wonderful job to remind me of why I enjoy what I do. But, but, you know, to be frank, we come from a two income household, but I am the main support of our family. And a big reason for me not leaving tech was because I didn't want to put the burden of the financial cut on my family, which is, you know, I mean, I don't want to say I'm here for the money because that's definitely not true, but it would have been a strain if I left. And I'm grateful that I have since found positions that I love with people that I enjoy that have made me feel accepted and hear my opinions and uh, treat me as a, valued peer that has kept me going and you know it made me rediscover why i enjoy what i do don't know if you saw the um the post that came out last week about this might need a this might need editing for lawsuit purposes but i think it was riot games and a senior developer who left and he posted a long screed about why he left and the company culture and uh, the other the other name i'd love to drop in before we wrap up is of course james demore and his women in it manifesto at google that blew off a few years ago where uh, this was this was a, a young man working at google i'm sure you saw it where they had a uh, a diversity in google conference and uh, they asked for feedback. So he wrote a manifesto about why women didn't want to be in IT, which is, did you see that? You know, I probably did, but it's not jumping in my brain right now. I think I'll, I'll it's sum- been about almost four years now. I'll summarize yeah, it for you. Uh, his his, his uh, approach to getting more women into technology was deciding that women didn't want to be in technology in the first place. So everything was fine. And he uh, lost his job, I believe, at Google. But I think I think there's a lot of that going around in in the IT profession. And or for every for every James Moore, there are I think many people who also think that way, and they don't think that there are problems in IT. They just think women just don't want to work very hard. Yeah. Now that you say that, I, this yes absolutely does ring a bell. And oh gosh, it makes my stomach turn to hear it. As I was. Reading up on uh, this issue, one thing that stuck out with me that I thought was interesting was there was a survey that showed, and this was back from 2014, so it's a few years back, but like 29% of CIOs in the industry didn't think that women were underrepresented in tech. 
And it kind of was mind blowing to think that that number was so high as it was that you know, the, the women we have is really all we think we can find. It, it just seems so silly to me because I'm sure there are plenty of women out there right now that just wish that they could find a position that was more representative of their skills, whether they're currently employed in some a place where they feel no progress is available or they're struggling to find work. Do you think it's at all linked to uh, mathematics? In what sense? In, Skill, kind of, in mathematical skills? In, yeah, in kind of primary schools. And, you know, uh, generally kind of girls are like, don't like, maths is more of a boy thing. Uh, this, this is a... Uh, uh, I know I know it's not supposed to be anymore, but certainly when I was growing up, this was a prevailing opinion that boys were better at maths and women were better at languages and things like that. You know, what I've seen, and I don't have a specific reference in front of me for it, though, is that there's actually uh, boys and girls are on par throughout grade school when it comes to math skills and, and such. And I think as they start getting to high school, there's a divergence that happens. and whether the divergence is based on directions they're pushed or directions that, you know, they have strong leadership that can represent them. I'm not sure, but you, they start noticing not because of lack of skills, but because of just the directions they tend to move starting in high school. So I don't, I definitely don't think it's a skill-based thing at all. I do think there's more culture involved with it. And actually, as I said, you know, I, I feel passionate about teaching tech to kids. And one of that is one of those reasons is because I feel it's almost my responsibility as a woman in tech to be able to show that women in tech, or that women can do this and to show it to both girls and boys so that I can set an example and maybe inspire some of the girls, but also teach some of the boys that, hey, their female peers can tag along just as well and maybe surpass them. To speak to that, actually, there are like two people in my life that were pretty critical in in me actually going down this path and becoming a uh, a programmer at all. And one of them was one of my close high school friend's mom, moms who uh, has been a programmer her whole life or whatever. She still is. And I don't think she's retired just yet. Literally, it, her mentoring actually was a major part in, in me deciding to do this. So I guess my point is both that whether you're male or female, there's sort of like agnosticism. Your mentoring applies to everybody, right? But at the same time, like, I don't know, encourage well, people, other, I guess, whatever in general. The other thing that, that there is to this, though, and, and I feel like we discount this a lot, too, is just how much work you're willing to put in. I agree that there are some cultural pressures that, uh, at least in the past, I think they're becoming less, but I think they're still a factor. That's completely anecdotal for me. I don't have anything to back that up. But yeah, the, the push men one way or boys one way and, and girls another. But uh, at the same time, I mean, yeah, what it really boils down to, if you read Martin Gladwell's book, um, it's the one where he talks about 10,000 hours. I, I can't remember the name of it. But anyway, oh, something, what, what about, it, something, something mastery. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to look it up and put a link in. But he basically points out that there's a bunch of evidence that shows that, yeah, some people have may have more of an aptitude towards something. But their ability to actually go in and master and participate in that particular activity really boils in down to how much time they put in. In other words, you may have an aptitude toward uh, piano playing, but if you don't practice and if you don't take lessons, then it doesn't matter how much you of an aptitude you have, right? As long as because somebody else who's going to go practice and get trained is going to do much better 
with that. I say it also has to do though where where your desires take you. You may have an yeah. aptitude for playing piano, but you also have an aptitude for playing hockey. And yep. so you you know you decide to focus your attention on hockey and your piano skills go down. Yeah, I agree. So I guess the point I'm making is even if there is some measurable disparity between men and women in whatever skills we decide are important for uh, programming. And what's interesting is, is it's not just mathematics. It's not just tech. It's not just specific computer skills anymore. It's your ability to collaborate with the team. It's your ability to work in certain environments. It's, a, it's an ability to write. So there are all these other things that go into it. The reality is, is that if women want to go into tech, I haven't seen any reason why they can't be just as effective as men. And there are differences between men and women to be sure, but I just haven't seen anything that makes them better programmers. Sometimes they approach problems differently, but that's a good thing. So overall, yeah, I mean, that, that's that's what I'm looking at. And so, yeah, are we discouraging girls, women, you know, as they grow up to, to not go into this or not be interested in it? Or is, is are there other things going on? And, and again, I don't know if there's good and uh, evidence out there or not, but it's, it's think, definitely interesting conversation to have. I think something worth mentioning, which I hadn't brought up here before is, so yes, I'm a software developer, but I never hoped or dreamed that this would be, I, it, was, it was totally off my radar growing up. I actually went to school, my, I have two bachelor's degrees where my first one is in sociology. I had hoped to turn into work to become a therapist or a social worker or something along those lines, something very stereotypical of women in the workforce. But it turns out, you know, I, after I finished my bachelor's degree, I did not want to continue on for a master's, which you don't you can't really do much with a sociology degree at that point. So I had, you know, I spent about a year reevaluating who I was and what I wanted and honestly picked computer science because I had a friend who worked for a big company as an engineer and she's like, yeah, you should check this out. I had no idea what I was getting into. And it just, you know, I took my first CS1 and it turned out I was good at it and I enjoyed it. And I'm grateful that I went back to it. But I was definitely one of those people that went down the stereotypical girl's path as I was going through school. Makes sense. All right. Well, we are at the point where we have to wrap up. I really appreciate just the the honest conversation and the I'm going to go dive into some of these numbers that you've brought up because I think it's important to talk about what people's experiences are because I think that's how we understand things is basically through stories and experiences, whether they're ours or somebody else's. And then also to look at the numbers and say, okay, so, you know, what are the widespread problems and how do we tackle these? And yes, thank, thanks, Luke. The book is Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. All right, let's go ahead and do some picks. Luke, do you want to start us off with picks? Uh, I've got a pick. My pick is Dragon Ruby. Have you heard of Dragon Ruby? Yep, we did an episode on it last year. Well, I guess I'm late to this party then. He's got a talk out on YouTube. It was at Ruby Kaigi last year about his SDL to Ruby, MRuby to CLang stack that lets you write a game in Ruby and then create a executable that will run on Windows, Mac, and Linux. And uh, he also demonstrated on the the Nintendo Switch. Is it called a Switch? Uh, mm-hmm. Which is pretty impressive. 
cross compilation stack powered using Clang. What I believe Dragon Ruby is still available as part of a humble bundle pack to raise money for a very good cause in the States. So if you look that up, you can get Dragon Ruby for a reduced price as part of that humble bundle. So that is my pick. Nice. And that was by Amir? That was by Amir Rajan. Yeah. He, it's an interesting story, but he bought it from, was it Matt Amanetti or Laurent? I think it was Laurent. Anyway, I can't remember which one of them started it, but anyway, yeah, he bought it because he was writing his apps in it. Yeah. We had him on a while back and then we also had Lori Olson on and she has a course on Dragon Ruby. So I'll put links to both of those in the show notes as well. Uh, John, do you want to give us some picks? I do. Uh, right before I get to my pick, though, I did have that link from earlier, which I'm putting in chat or whatever. Just hadn't had a good opportunity to follow up. It was actually a 2017 RailsConf uh, keynote, and the guy was named Marco Rogers, and he talked about how basically, like for most of his software career, he was the only black person in every job or whatever, and he was talking about how that made him feel. But yeah, if you haven't seen it, you should you should go see it. So he's just talking about his perspective, and that's what I was referring to. Okay, so my pick. For the past few weeks, I've been doing plenty of fixing up things in my house. And there's that like age-old problem where, like, for example, you're like trying to decide what line you're gonna buy for your weed whacker or like what bit you're gonna buy, because there's like four brands on the shelf at Lowe's or something or whatever. And you're like, well, I don't know which one's better. And this one costs less or this one costs more. And I've used this one before. Anyway, there's a a YouTube channel that I ran across, I don't know, like a month ago. And now I'm just consuming all of their videos at this point. Uh, But they're just called Project Farm. And this dude just basically goes and tests stuff like this. Like he takes bits and he like tests like which brands actually like last longer or things like that or which trimmer line lasts longer. It's pretty slick. So I'll link that in the uh, as my pick or whatever. But if you, I don't know, just want to know this stuff randomly or if you actually like me or suddenly find yourself like trying to decide what you should buy at the store And I don't know, I just thought it was super useful to have some dude test a bunch of brands of stuff and then actually be able to walk away with some learning. Is this a a good channel or one of those ones you put on because you can't sleep? (laughs) I would probably not watch this before bed. There's definitely a lot of loud noises when he's evaluating these things. Whatever. I probably wouldn't watch it before bed. It's just not that kind of a thing. But but I definitely wanted to know like what the best bits were and what the best oil was and like and it's whatever. That's interesting to me. So nice. All right. I'll throw in some picks and then we'll have Trisha give us some picks. So I've been reading a lot of books lately. One of the books that I just finished is the twelve week year. I've read it before and it's basically a way to plan out your life three months at a time or 12 weeks at a time. It, it's terrific. It's more or less the way that I go about getting stuff done. And so I'm going to pick that. The other book I read is The Obstacle is the Way. And it's a book about based on Stoic philosophy. And it it's by Ryan Holiday, if you read any of his other books. But he basically outlines how bad things happen or things that, you know, wish you wished hadn't happened. A lot of times that's actually an opportunity in, in disguise. And he walks through a lot of examples and, and things from... Uh, popular culture. And and anyway, I've really, really enjoyed that book. So I'm going to pick that as well. This last year and more or less the year before, uh, hadn't gone exactly to plan. And I was just, you know, I'd been pretty down on a lot of it. And just reading this book really kind of helped me put some of it into perspective. So anyway, really, really enjoyed that book. So I'm going to pick those. I'm also going to shout out about Rails Remote Conf that's coming up in 
August. So uh, you can find that at railsremoteconf.com. And yeah, that's what I've got. Trisha or Trish, what are your picks? One of my favorite things is to watch Simone Gertz's YouTube channel. And I don't know if you all are familiar with her, but she is a, I would call her a builder uh, who likes to just build machines that have zero purpose. Just kind of fun things to see if she can. She has a whole video about hunting robots with bow and arrow and, or, you know, she has the famous alarm clock that wakes you up with, you know, the hand slapping your face. It's just a fun, fun show to watch. I enjoy watching it with my 13 year old daughter and she enjoys sharing it with the girls on her robotics team. So it's a lot of fun. Nice. All right, Trish, if people want to connect with you online or have questions or whatever, right? How how do they connect with you? You can reach out to me at my Twitter handle, I guess, you know, which is so funny because I don't even know what it is. I think it's uh, Trisha L. Ball, at Trisha L. Ball. I don't, I'm not consistent at all with how I name things. Um, so feel free to reach out to me there. And yeah, I think that's probably the best way. All right. Well, thanks for coming. This was really a terrific conversation. Thank you. I really had a great time. It was good to go back and forth on it. All right, folks, we're going to wrap this one up. Until next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.